From Casa de Esperanza's National Latino Network, I'm Marisa Kurtz, and this is Conversations Over Cafecito. 2020 has marked a year of many themes. Reflection, action, and my favorite, pivoting. Of the lessons learned, I know that participation is key to make change. I'm a millennial and Latina, and it feels like a daunting task to see how I can even begin to make a difference. At the core of Casa de Esperanza, we work to mobilize the Latino community to build healthy futures. And through this series, Presente, empowering Latino communities through civic engagement, will highlight simple ways that anyone can take action, make change, and create a future you wish to see. In this episode, we'll be diving into the 2020 U.S. Census to talk about its history, structure, and impact. We'll be talking with Lizette Escobedo, the director of the National Census Program at the Naleo Educational Fund. As a self-proclaimed census nerd, Lizette talks about why the U.S. Census matters to Latino communities and why it's so important that you're counted. Thanks so much for joining us, Lizette. I wanted to start this conversation off by getting a background for listeners who may not be familiar with the U.S. Census. Could you talk a bit about the purpose behind the census and why it's important for people to participate? So the U.S. Census happens every 10 years. As folks know, it is mandated by the U.S. Constitution. And in essence, what the census is, is a snapshot of the country on April 1st of that particular decennial. So in essence, it's an effort to get a full count of the country, both to figure out how many people are in each state, What are the resources that each state will need to operate, right? Whether it's for housing services, transportation, education, healthcare. These census counts also determine the distribution of districts. It determines how many members of Congress each state will get, how many electoral college votes each state will get. And then at the more granular level, a lot of the census data is used to make very specific decisions when it comes to what businesses make sense to place where. It also is used to determine how districts are drawn when it comes to school board, city council, and county level. So the census data, you can say, is a cornerstone of how we kind of live in this country and how democracy functions in this country. So Lizette, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about Naleo and the work that you guys are currently doing, including the census and also some of the other areas that you're focusing on? Sure. So first off, NALEO stands for the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials Educational Fund. So we're the nation's leading 501c3 nonprofit. Our organization is nonpartisan. We don't support any political party. Our mission is simply to facilitate full Latino participation in the American political process from citizenship to public service. So what does that mean? Within our work as an Aleo Educational Fund, we focus specifically on civic engagement in a couple of different ways. One, we focus on making sure that Latinos participate fully in the voting process. That includes registering to vote, voting, and it also includes access to the polls through voter protection programs and election protection programs. We also do citizenship work. So our uh, citizenship work includes assisting Latinos through the entire naturalization process for making sure that they understand how do you qualify to become a citizen, where do you go to apply to become a citizen, what are the costs, etc. And then lastly is the piece that I tackle, which is census participation. So we encourage Latinos 
to participate every 10 years in the census, because as we know, it brings in resources and representation to our community. So the intent here is really to provide access to the Latino community, to the political process, to the democratic process. The intent is not to tell them how to vote, how to create their political opinions. It's simply to let them know how, you know, the power of their voice, of their vote. Additionally, we also have a 501c4, that is NALEO, and our 501c4 is also nonpartisan. Um, it is a membership organization of over 6,000 Latino elected officials across the country. Our members are from all across the political spectrum. So our members include Latino elected officials that are Democrats, Republicans, independents, other party. And the intent of our 501c4 work is really to provide the tools, the training, and the resources needed for our elected officials to be good leaders in, in our communities. Again, we don't help anyone get elected. We just make sure that once they are elected into our community, that they have, again, the tools they need to lead those communities. So that's in a nutshell, a lot of what we do. Our primary mission is just to make sure that Latinos are educated and informed about democratic process in this country. I know Naleo does some great work around Latino participation specifically in the census. What are those specific campaigns and strategies that you're doing currently to increase community engagement with the census? So we started out, all of our census campaigns every 10 years, we start out years in advance because we know that it does take some preparation to figure out how are we going to reach not just the hardest to count Latino communities, but the hardest of the hardest to count, right, from what we know from other decennial census. So we started out planning about two years back for our 2020 campaign. And what we did is we initially launched our national campaign and our national banner, which is our Agase Con campaign. So under our Agase Contar campaign, we have what we call these sub-campaigns, where we focus specific strategy and efforts on reaching very particular hard-to-count communities under all of our Latino hard-to-count communities. So our strategies focus on very specific kind of areas of work. So one big strategy of our work is our earned media efforts. So we work very closely with Spanish language media partners. For example, we have a national relationship with Telemundo. We also, this time around, for the census, we're able to do two different phases of radio advice in border regions, in rural communities, and in communities where we know that Latinos tend to radio as their main news source. And then we've also engaged in one of our largest digital advice strategies, I think, in the history of the organization, where we honed in on targeting Latino millennials and, in essence, giving them census-related content and very easy to use and easy to access content so that they would go directly into the census website, fill out their census form. And then we have about 20 or so folks in the field across six different states, which we know is our high Latino density priority states, which are Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, and New York. And so there in the field, all of our regional census managers work closely with the coalitions, the complete count committees, the elected officials that are actually members of Naleo Educational Fund. And we have very regional hyper-focused, hyper-targeted strategies. In addition to all of this, we belong to quite a few national coalitions where we do a lot of training, capacity building, develop tons of resources. Under our Agase Contar umbrella, the other thing that we decided to do early on in the year is we did our Train the Trainer tour. This is pre-COVID. We went to about 15 states throughout the country and we trained 3,600 census ambassadors 
from the A through Z's of census. It was about a five to six hour training. They all got their certificate after. And so we wanted to make sure that everyone became census experts so that they knew how the operations worked and everything worked. Now that's our national effort. That's the banner that we use to do all of our work. Now we developed two other sub campaigns just because we there was a huge need in these two areas. So one of our sub campaigns is called Asme Contar. So Asme Contar focuses on ensuring the full count of young Latino children. And the reason why we decided to make this its own kind of separate campaign is because in 2010, there were 1 million young kids missed, zero, uh, ages 0 to 4. And out of those 1 million, 400,000 were Latino children, which is about 40%. And so we knew that this effort was going to take a focused approach. Through our Asme Contar, we developed resources for educators, school board members, parent teachers. We did tons of conferences throughout the years. And so we had a very particular focus on targeting the caregivers of young children. And then our last effort, which was new to the organization, is a sub-campaign that we launched with Youth Collective called The Present is Latina. So across the various civic engagement research that we've done and other organizations have done, we know that Latina women tend to be the influencers in their household. And so what we decided to do is target Latina millennial women in their households to encourage everyone in their house to participate in the census. So we had a very targeted approach where we honed in on what it means to embrace your power as a Latina woman and what it means to be part of a history of struggle from our grandmas to our moms, et cetera. And the videos that we actually did for that campaign were actually amongst the most successful online. And so we have all-encompassing approach, hyper-targeted approach, and then a geo-targeted approach. And so it's been been a, like a long two years. <laughs> Right. And that's really interesting to hear that there was such a big lack of representation of youth in this past census. And I'm wondering if there are any common misconceptions that might be preventing folks from participating in the census or families from participating? Yes. So one of the things that we realized when we looked at the specific numbers and we and we worked with a couple of researchers specifically on the undercount of children is that we realized that it wasn't necessarily that household wasn't counting itself, it was the fact that children were actually omitted from the form, which we take it as folks just simply not knowing that children are supposed to be included in the form. And so we, when we've done our research and focus groups, you know, some parents expressed, well, they don't pay taxes or they don't have to go to the DMV. It was kind of just all these different misconceptions around who should be on the form. And so that was one area of, of kind of misconception. The other area was there was a lot of folks who thought that because someone in their household was undocumented, that they shouldn't be counted. One, either because they just thought, well, the census might just be for citizens, right? Or two, because there was some fear in including someone who was undocumented on the form. And so there's a lot of work that we've had to do throughout the past two years to inform folks that not only one, is there data protected by Title 13 of the U.S. Code, but two, that the form actually didn't ask any questions regarding citizenship or immigration status. And so we've had to do a lot of that work. There's also a misconception that the census is only done through door knocking, right? Many years, the enumeration has either been paper form or paper form and door knocking. And so folks were expecting the same 
So this time around, we had to inform folks that now they have three options and that all three options are the same. And then the last piece, actually, which is interesting, is there's a lot of confusion, again, of who should be included on the form, especially when the particular household or address or property is shared, right? So I may have a four-bedroom house, but my tia lives in one bedroom. I rent out the other bedroom, and then the garage actually has someone else that I rent out to. But I may not have a permit for that garage to be rented out. And so often what happens is the person that gets the form will just count their family but not everybody who actually lives in that address. By the same vein of data privacy and protection, we inform them that this information is also not shared with landlords. It's not shared with planning and zoning of their city. No one's going to find out that that garage is converted, but that it is important for everyone to be counted. So there's a lot of misconceptions. Sometimes there is misinformation out there depending where they're getting this the particular information. But this is a lot of work that we've had to do that's particular to the Latino community. Thanks for these important clarifications about the way the Census Bureau tracks this information. And while we're on the subject of clarification, the White House, as you know, recently released a policy memo calling for a change in the way that the census counts people living in the U.S., specifically how we count undocumented immigrants. Can you walk us through this announcement to unpack what exactly this means? You know, the interesting part of when this policy memo was released is that a lot of the misconceptions were actually guided by news headlines. Everywhere that you looked, you read like, oh, the Trump administration wants to like make sure that undocumented people aren't counted. And so what ended up happening in our communities is that there's now this kind of misconception that when the enumeration happens, either door to door or on the form, that somehow the Bureau is going to ask someone for their immigration status, right? But that's actually not the case. So what the Trump policy memo is, is basically a memo that intends to manipulate the census count after folks have been enumerated. So what does that mean? What that means is that once the enumeration has been completed, right, once folks have done the either filled it out online, you know, uh, by mail or on the phone, or there have been attempts to contact that household through the door-to-door enumeration, all of that data is compiled. And so what the Trump administration, in essence, is is calling for is to then take estimates that, as we know, they're estimates and by default flawed to remove the folks who may be. And this is not like an individual way, right? It's not going to be like, oh. Here's, you know, Lisa, she's undocumented remover. This is kind of data sets, right? And so to remove those estimates from the total counts from each state before the redistricting process happens. Again, they're estimates. There's really nothing accurate about them. And so that could potentially mean loss in congressional seats for many states. It doesn't really impact the resources part directly, but I'll explain a little bit on how we're looking at it from that perspective but it would impact the political power for some states. It would set a precedent for who counts as a quote-unquote whole person as the Constitution mandates. And so that's really the worrisome part. On the operational end, nothing is going to change. So when someone gets their form, 
there is still no citizenship question on there. There is still no question about immigration status. When door-to-door enumerators start knocking on doors who haven't responded on August 11th and on, none of those enumerators will be asking anyone for their immigration status, their citizenship status, et cetera. So none of the operations is going to change. Now, with the policy memo, it will be challenged in the courts, mostly because of of its unconstitutional nature, right? It really is challenging the 14th Amendment and what we designate as a whole persons, right? Because it's in essence saying that by not including undocumented folks in the redistricting process, we're now saying that folks who are undocumented are zero-fifths of a person, right? The whole, the whole point of the 14th Amendment was to say that slaves were no longer three-fifths of a person. They were now counted as whole persons for the sake of redistricting because they would also be represented in Congress. And so that's the worrisome part of it. But again, there's not going to be anything changing on the operational side. We are still encouraging everyone to respond to the census. And, you know, I think The way that folks should also look at this is that there is so much political potential in the Latino community that it scares people. Right. And I think that you definitely hit out the nail on the head. The Latino community is so powerful and strong in the U.S. And I'm wondering, too, just thinking about this history of representation, when did Latinos actually start counting as a subpopulation in the census? And what was the history of that? What, were there any controversies around this demographic being added? So the question on Latino or Hispanic origin didn't get added onto the census until 1970. And this was a direct result of various civil rights organizations coming together to get this added to the census. Now, there was this whole conversation and debate on what is Hispanic, Latino versus Spanish speaking, right? How do we separate the fact that there's some European countries that are Spanish speaking, but not considered Latino, right? So there was that whole debate going on. But when the question actually got placed on the census, I believe it went out to testing and 1970. But again, this came as a result of organizations fighting to get this on and making sure that it had the appropriate subcategories as well. Because as you see the Hispanic origin question, it not only asked Hispanic origin, right, it asked specifically like nationalities. Additional ones were added throughout the years. This was a very powerful moment because it gave us an opportunity to see how many Latinos are in the country, how have they grown, what are some of the things that we need to look at in terms of fighting for key civil rights policies. Things as simple as when we look at Section 203 of the Voting Rights Act, when we say, what are the languages that you need to have available in these polling places? We can now look at specific census data where we get a sense of what does that community look like to enforce those type of civil rights policies. And so it was a very powerful thing. And I think when that was added and as the census has gone by, you see that category continues to increase, right? The last census, we were 50 million. It is estimated that by 2060, we're going to be about 111 million, which would make us about 30% of the total population of the country. And so it wasn't only about identity, but it was also what is our power in terms of numbers. 
Now, there's still ongoing conversations on how this question is structured. In 2014, there were efforts by the Office of Management and Budget to look into the race and Hispanic origin question to figure out why is it creating confusion, right? Because a lot of organizations, including ours, raise the issue that most Latinos see their ethnicity as a race. We don't think like, oh, I'm a Black Latino or I'm a white Latino. We just think I'm a Latina. And so what we were seeing is that when folks were filling out the race section in 2000, about 97% of folks that filled out the some other race were actually Latino, which means that we just don't identify with race. And so in 2014, there's this whole study done. We testified we developed all these policy briefs. We had seen a recommendation of consolidating the two questions into one in a way that was less confusing for Latinos and provided more data accuracy. However, in 2016, when the new administration came in, that entire effort became dormant. We never heard back. And so a lot of organizations were under the impression that it was going to move forward because we had seen a beta version. But then to our surprise, our, the form in 2020 went back to the two-question format, which continues to just be very confusing for Latinos and which we foresee that for Latinos, some other race will continue to be the largest racial category. Right. And it's so important for us all to understand the history of how Latinos have been counted. Looking forward, what do you think are the trends we can expect to see in the 2030 census? What kind of Latino participation turnout should we be anticipating? It's hard to think to 2030 because I'll be very honest in that the 2020 census has become just something we never expected. Getting real for a little bit, like even when I took the job to do this again for the second time, I was not expecting a lot of the challenges. And then we weren't at all expecting a global pandemic. And so I think the challenge that we're having to think through now is at what point does this census become so flawed that we need to start looking at possibilities for 2021? Because we have the citizenship question challenge, which scared a lot of Latinos. And then we have the policy memo, which, you know, again, from the headlines has really scared a lot of folks. And again, even though that has to do with the redistricting process, just because of the headlines, we do foresee that it is going to get a lot of folks thinking twice about filling out their form, especially undocumented folks. And then now we have other potential issues that are being challenged, right, within the within Congress and the Senate on figuring out whether they're going to approve an extension for the redistricting data that goes to the states. If they don't approve an extension, that means that the door-to-door or non-response follow-up process is going to be like expedited which means that we can have a super flawed non-response follow-up process, which is a way that we enumerate about 60% of the country. It's kind of all of these constant attacks on one of the most basic and nonpartisan pillars of democracy. And so when we think about 2030, it's like, but how are we going to handle like 2020? Like we still don't know what's going to happen, but there are a lot of changes that need to happen by 2030. One, there is not only the redesign of the questionnaire, not just because of the race and Hispanic origin questions and consolidating into one, but there's other things missing from the census as well, right? For example, it doesn't cover sexual orientation or gender identity. It specifically just asks for sex, right? Which the National LGBTQ Task Force, which we work 
closely with has been working on that for many years. And so there's a lot of things that need to change with the actual form. There is a lot of power and implications in form design, but there's also things that need to change when we look at the operational side, how the Census Bureau prepares. Are we going to do internet choice again? Do we need a larger budget? Do we need a budget in the 09 years, right? Or in the year prior to the actual enumeration? This time they didn't have that. There's a lot of kind of minute things on the operational side that when not done properly have a huge impact on how everything functions. But I think the biggest question here, especially with this memo, is what are also the pieces that shouldn't change, right? The fact that it is a constitutional mandate to count whole persons for the sake of redistricting, those things shouldn't change. There's key pillars that should never have been questioned or changed. The addition of a, an ill-informed citizenship question. So for 2030, there's a lot of things that we want to see go back to the usual that shouldn't change, the constitutionality of things. But there's also things that we need to work on and do better to make sure that hard-to-count communities aren't just quote-unquote hard-to-count because as the Bureau, they can't reach them, but that the Bureau is putting as much resources as they can on the front end to make sure that they're reachable. So a lot of work all around, but it is a little bit hard to think beyond 2021 right now. (laughs) I definitely can understand that, as you mentioned, COVID and the current social justice movement and the election, they all have definitely impacted the work that we at Casa de Esperanza do. So I'm sure that must be at the very least a challenge to think ahead to the next census. And it's so amazing, Lisa, to hear the passion in your voice just talking about the U.S. census. And I'm curious, what got you interested in specifically working with Latino communities to help participation in the U.S. Census? So I worked on the census in 2010, right, with Naleo. And then I left for seven years and did a bunch of stuff, you know, worked on other social justice issues. We all work on different social justice issues, right? I worked on immigration reform. I work on workers' rights. I've worked on environmental justice. But there's also things that we have to look at in terms of the systems by which we do this work that at its core disenfranchises our communities, right? For me, it was honestly having these moments of remembering when I was 10 years old and I had to go to all the county offices with my mom and my dad because they didn't speak the language. And I had to learn to navigate a system at 10 years old. I had to be an attorney, a notary public, uh, an interpreter at 10 years old, right? I think this is a lived experience that a lot of us who do this work have and that we start noticing at a very early age how far removed our communities are from access to things, to resources, to information. And so when I looked at like, what is at the core of all of this? I see one, things like the census, because the census determines so many things in our community. It determines how many federal funds our communities are going to have. It determines, you know, how we're going to get those votes in Congress to make sure that immigration reform actually 
passes this time around. And so my thought was I can just either continue to be angry about how my parents are treated in every kind of office that we go to and every kind of aspect of even going in somewhere and them speaking Spanish and other people thinking, you know, looking down at them and then you kind of have to walk in, right, speaking in English to make sure that someone knew that you were behind them. You use that to take it into your work. And so I thought the best way to give my community access, my parents access, is to go in the system and try to shape it and work within it from the inside out. I worked on Get Out the Vote work with Naleo. I actually ran for office myself in my city. And because at the core, it's like, what is our potential power and our opportunity to change who represents us? And then on the census, it's what is our opportunity, not just for resources, political representation, but there's also something very powerful in being able to say, Latinos are not a minority. We are the second largest population group in the country. And we get that information by a census count. I can either complain, just be very upset about my parents' immigrant experience, or I can do something about making sure that the immigrant experience and the experience of being Latino or Latina in this country is different because I can play a part in it. Thank you so much, Lizette, for sharing your story. And you highlighted an important part of the work that Casa de Esperanza also aims to focus on, which is understanding the intersectionality of everything. And even though our focus is on ending gender-based violence within Latino communities, we also need to make sure that we're lifting up key civic engagement opportunities to make sure that these communities continue to be represented throughout the nation. Thank you all for having me on for the great work that you all do. I always say none of this work is done alone. It is done in coalition and in partnership. And without partners like you all and really folks putting the work on the ground, we wouldn't be able to do as much as we do and to try to get closer to our end goal, right, of giving our community access to the democracy and the resources that they deserve. To connect the U.S. Census back to the work of Casa de Esperanza, an organization working to end domestic violence in the Latino community, I spoke with our public policy manager, Dr. Olivia Garcia, who broke down how this will impact those working in the gender-based violence field. It is critical for Latinos to participate in the U.S. Census because it is a way to feel included in the country. The counting of people is outlined in the foundation of the United States And this is for all people that reside within the country. So it's not based on race, gender, age, or immigration status. All individuals need to be included in the census. We know that resources are allocated based on the census counts. Money is allocated to states, programs, departments based on these population counts. So if populations are undercounted, this will have a substantial effect on resources, services, and political representation. These effects will live on for a decade since the census is done every 10 years. And the impact of participating in the census today will have lasting effects for our future. Being counted in the census is a way to have your voice be heard. And there are so many moments when Latinas and survivors of gender-based violence are silenced. Being counted means being seen, being heard, which is an important aspect of healing. Participating in the census means that programs that can assist survivors can be created and more services that can help people leave unhealthy relationships can pop up in your community and in your neighborhood. 
Since resources are allocated based on the census, then it is critical for the Latino community to be counted and for Latina, Latino survivors of gender-based violence to participate the census as well so they can help break the cycle of violence in communities. Two weeks after this interview, the U.S. Census Bureau issued an update announcing that they will stop census field data collection and self-response options on September 30th, 2020, one month sooner than previously announced. There's concern that this could result in the undercounting of people of color and immigrant communities. So take 10 minutes of your time to influence 10 years of American policy by completing your census form and encouraging others to do the same. You can complete the online census at my2020census.gov or over the phone in English by dialing 844-330-2020 or in Spanish at 844-468-2020. Your voice matters. A special thank you to Lizette Escobedo and Dr. Olivia Garcia for participating in this podcast and shining more light on the importance of this year's U.S. Census. This has been another episode of Conversations Over Cafecito, brought to you by the National Latino Network for Healthy Families and Communities, a project of Casa de Esperanza that builds bridges and connections among research, practice, and policy to advance effective responses to eliminate domestic violence and promote healthy relationships within Latino families and communities. For more information, you can visit nationallatinonetwork.org. I'm Marisa Kurtz. Thank you for listening.